I will not totally disappoint you, but maybe a little bit, because I thought of developing a certain line from Trump as an example to general new figures of obscene masters, how to do it, and so on and so on. Because of some other health issues and so on, I wasn't able to develop, to elaborate the entire line. So I will talk about this. I will not totally cheat. Just uh, it will be not the whole line, not so focused, a little bit more fragmented and so on. I sincerely uh, apologize. Uh, it will be a little bit, not so much about Trump. Again, since I didn't have time to prepare all the details, I will do today mostly something which I hope will not disappoint you too much. I know it already appeared digitally only. My text on, and I hope you, if you haven't seen the movie, you've at least heard about it, the new Joker movie. I will do a kind of a Stalinist self-criticism. I think that you may even have heard it. My first reaction, without seeing the movie, of course, <laughs> was a certain criticism of the movie, but after, nonetheless, against all my principles, actually seeing the movie, I, I changed my mind. I don't think the movie does this reductionist genesis simply. Let's show the background, the origins of the figure of Joker. I think it's more interesting, more complex. So, the majority of today's talk will be my relatively close analysis of Joker. Some of it, if you are stupid enough to follow my texts on the web, because this is at least literally, I'm not kidding, in the English domain is the only place where I can publish now. I'm totally prohibited from pr printed media, literally, I'm not kidding. Uh, the only thing they invite me, I was so disgusted, I don't know if I told you this story, big media, is to ridicule me. So, for example, I got two months ago a message from The Guardian. Would you like to meet a journalist and take him to your favorite beer and wine places in Ljubljana? I told him, are you crazy? First, what do you want me, to be there a clown peer? Second thing, I told them, sorry, I'm not for any moral reasons, but it's my private madness. I, I'm, I'm totally non-alcoholic. I don't drink beer, I don't drink wine, and so on, so it was typical. But what I wanted to say <laughs> is that I apologize if we will recognize some parts, but uh, there will be new additions and so on. And I hope that, again, many of you have, if not seen, actually at least heard about the movie so that you will... Uh, be able to follow. I, will, I would nonetheless like to provoke you a little bit, to improvise a little bit, to resume a comment which, if it appeared at all, I'm not sure, it must have been digitally only, of course, uh, uh, on uh, Trump, so that nonetheless I somehow relate. I will return, apropos Joker, later to the Trump figure, because what I find especially amusing is that I surfed a little bit on the web, comments on Joker, and two 
figures are mentioned with Joker. One is, of course, Donald Trump. Isn't Trump the big Joker, which reigns in the United States? The second guy is much more marginally, of course, but nonetheless, it's predictably me, no? Am I not the joker of philosophy and so on? <laughs> Why not? What I want to say about Trump is, I'm sorry if some of you already know this line, but it's important to make it, because I was again already accused of, ah, I am ambiguous, I'm again defending Trump. Believe me, I am not. Look at my, I forgot which one, I think it's Trouble in Paradise book, where I opened the book with this uh, chapter, sorry, with this comparison, comparing Trump to, I said, imagine a nice reception, people nicely dressed, and somebody just, uh, just there kneels down and sits in the middle of that room. So I have no sympathy, illusion, and so on. But I have doubts as all good leftists that I know in the United States. I was there three weeks ago. I debated it with my friends there about this impeachment procedures. Why? Not that I have any doubts that Trump is guilty. Not that I have any sympathy about Trump. But as, you know who noticed this? Very perspicuously. Snowden from Moscow. And incidentally, he is more and more my hero, Snowden. Did you read his last interview where I would be afraid to do this if I were in Russia? He quite openly said, openly, that he would much prefer to be somewhere else, in Western Europe or where. He said, I know Russia's record on human rights is covered, and he said openly, they just use me to be able to say, no, no, you see, we care about human rights, and so on. So it was, incidentally, quite a courageous act, you know. And I learned from, again, people who know people who know people who know Snowden, that he is pretty desperate there. He, all the time, he writes letters, his hope is some of this famously liberal, friendly to... Uh, uh, to to emigrant uh, uh, countries like, I don't know, France, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, they tried them all, none of them wants him. No, so it's not that he looked around the globe when he was desperate in Hong Kong, oh, why don't I choose Russia, the model of the model, it's not that. But okay, so Snowden said something very simple, but I think absolutely crucial at this moment political observation, that what makes this Trump impeachment procedure suspicious is that what? If we, sorry, if we learned anything about, from all the Wikipedia stuff, Snowden, Manning, and so on, is that the true problem today is not that corrupted guy used the institution for his or her own, usually it's him, of course, private corrupted pur purposes and so on and so on. The problem is, if I may use this uh, moralist term, the what we call evil, violence, whatever you call it, inscribed into the very functioning of the institution. What, for example, all the WikiLeaks, the first wave of papers, rendered clear is not that there was a corrupted uh, military or CIA official. No, this is how the institution functions. 
which is why, as Snowden pointed out, the institution, establishment, likes, is always ready to be self-critical when you can locate it to a specific corrupted person. In this way, institution emerges as clean. You know, oh, sorry, we were not careful enough, that guy there was... Uh, corrupted, and so on and so on. And to repeat another old story of mine, maybe you heard it, it's a good example. That's why I was very critical, I know I mentioned it in this same room already, I hope you saw, but now it's already 15 years ago, that a German movie which even got an Oscar, uh, 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 Lives of the Others. My criticism of that movie was not that it's too anti-communist, but that in some paradoxical sense is not anti-communist enough. In what sense? You know the story. A well-known East German writer performed, even theater writer, his pieces are performed in the West. He, uh, okay, to cut a long story short, a corrupted minister of culture in, his, in GDR wants to screw his wife and... Of course, so he wants to get rid of the husband, so he orders Stasi to control him totally, to find something to being able to get rid of him, to accuse him of some treason, blah, blah, blah. I find this ridiculous. First, I know a little bit, I visited it, I know about East Germany. A figure like the one who is depicted in the film, not the good Stasi guy, but the writer. Uh, listen, in real GDR, he would have been under total police control, as all their big names were, Brecht and so on, even if no minister wants to fuck your wife. You see the problem? The illusion of the film is, oh, it wouldn't have been so bad if that corrupted minister would not want to, to, to screw his wife and so on. No, it was in the system. That's why, again, establishment always likes this uh, personification of guilt. Oh, it's that corrupted guy, and so on, and so on. And here, it's not enough to ask, because the first critical step is, of course, okay, but how could such a corrupted guy advance to that post? No, even this is not enough. Our true focus should be, again, the true horror, which is the evil not performed by corrupted particular individuals, but inscribed into the very normal standard functioning of the institution, so that one can, and that's for me the true horror, one can easily imagine individuals who are in some a little bit weird, but nonetheless sense, quite honest individuals. They sincerely maybe think they are doing their patriotic duty and so on and so on, and they are doing what they are doing. That's for me the true discovery of WikiLeaks and all that stuff. This, this uh, pervasive, okay, I don't like the term evil, I just use it, don't put too much into it. Evil which is part of the normal functioning of the institution. That's why, maybe if you read my comment, I wrote, I mentioned, how is he called, the, the ex-boss of FBI, James Haley, or who he was, who he, uh, he published his memoirs attacking Trump with the title Higher Duty, something like this. And I believe him. His accusations against Trump are true, and so on, and so on. I'm just saying that I fear almost more this honest, patriotic guys. They are the most dangerous, because they are not even aware what 
they are doing. The other thing, but more about it tomorrow, just to give you a kind of a teaser, I'm getting, I think it's beyond my comprehension what American Democrats are doing. I really think, are they all secretly funded, corrupted by Trump or whatever? They are doing everything possible for Trump to get re-elected. And I know how I was criticized three years ago for, oh, you were for Trump. I was not for Trump. I just thought, and it did happen, that Trump's election opened up to cut a long story, no Bernie Sanders, no democratic socialism without Trump. I may be wrong, but believe me now, I'm definitely not for Trump. He did his historical duty. He, inadvertently, of course, revitalized the left. Now, his time is hopefully over, but I think if something unpredictable doesn't happen, he has chances of being re-elected. You know why? I saw a friend, a friend told me, from, uh, sent it to me from United States, Trump's latest publicity clip and so on. And it was rhetorically very good. The point was this one. Yes, I bend the rules, I am rough. But night and day I work for the American people. Dealing with serious problems. While what are Democrats doing? They are playing legal games, you know. Uh, did you break a small rule here, there, and so on, and so on? And even some Democrats were shocked how efficient this message was. This was clearly perceived already a month ago by Bernie Sanders, who said enough of this impeachment story, it's ruining us. But back to my main line, uh, as it were, about Trump. Uh, that's why... Uh, uh, more about this tomorrow, but just to give an idea, uh, uh, there are misuses of psychoanalysis in politics. And the greatest one is that when you have a phenomenon that you are not able to understand clearly in your terms, you said, oh, we need psychoanalysis. Three publishers approached me after Trump's election. They told me, this is so crazy. Would you write a book, a, a psychoanalytic reading of Trump? And my answer was a clear one. No, the only point where you, we need psychoanalysis is to grasp the stupidity of how Democrats oppose Trump. Trump, you know, he is not a madman, of course, within his scope. He's doing something which is very rational. He detects real people's trouble in a populist way. He addresses these troubles and so on. He is not doing crazy things. So these endless jokes against Trump and so on and so on are the, uh, crazy. The only really interesting analysis, right-wing analysis, but my God, I loved it. Uh, I will quote it in Mark Biden, is that I'm not kidding. It's so incredible that you will think I'm kidding. Is that a right-winger in National Review of, or some of those really hard journals published a text, a kind of a Fukuyama part two, claiming that what Fukuyama did for liberal capitalism, Hegelian reading as the end of history, the final stage, and so on, that we should do for Trump. And he does a kind of a... a 
Robert Brandom, by Brandom I mean, I refer to Brandom as a symbol, exemplary case of this liberal reading of Hegel where the fundamental category is recognition. That Hegel's ideal point of a just society is a society of mutual recognition. And his point is, and unfortunately there is a truth in it, that Trump learned this and it's very simple thesis, you must have heard it, but it's the first time that I heard it connected to Hegel. That uh, Trump saw that this white, silent majority of poor, half-unemployed workers and so on, they didn't feel recognized by the democratic establishment. And that, to put it ironically, as a good Hegelian, Trump said, so that in a perverted way, I like this thesis, Trump did the same thing that, of course, at an absolutely positive level, Morales did. The big act of Morales, I mean, I will at least not repeat this to you, if you want look at Independent, where yesterday I think they published a brief comment by me on what happened in uh, Bolivia. You know, Morales simply brought in this silent uh, indigenous mixed people who were simply excluded by the uh, excluded by the liberal elite. And Trump did the same, not with the rich, the rich were in any case already <laughs> in power, with all these half unemployed, poor, especially white workers and so on. This is why I'm more and more convinced now I will say something uh, sexist, I cannot help it, this is my nature, that Alessandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez, it's not only sexually attractive, but also very intelligent. If you have any doubts about it, look at her congressional hearings. No feminine stupidity, no what male chauvinists call feminine, no excellent, tough questioning. And she said, when she supported Trump, she said something very ingenious. She said, she saw it. She said that we, she was talking on behalf of that, what Trump called the squad, you know. She said that we support Bernie, not because of his good political stance and in spite of him being an old white man. She said no, precisely because he is an old white man. She saw it, she saw it, she saw it in an excellent way. The, the key is to link all these marginal struggles, but they are not marginal, but you know what I mean, race, uh, women's rights, and so on, to link them with this dissatisfied poor white class. This is the only winning formula. Left in the United States will not win elections in this Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden way. Incidentally, this, all this Biden affair is so depressing. I have, again, friends who know friends who know friends who know Hunter Biden, the son. And he told me this was general knowledge. Sorry, Trump is right there. Of course, his son is totally corrupted. I was not, everybody knows this. But what I want to say is this, that you see, uh, it's wrong, this democratic strategy. Let's move to the middle, not too extreme. Let's expand. No, didn't they learn the lesson of Trump? This was why 
even the majority in, of the Republican Party thought Trump cannot be elected. Because he, no, he has proven a point that every Marxist leftist should learn today, that sometimes the only way to gain majority is to move more radically to your side. It's not always that if you compromise and say, let's be more blurred, not clear, so that we include... Ev no, that's sometimes in specific situations, that's also precisely the way to lose elections. And now, again, Joe Biden is for me a new figure of, of uh, a new reincarnation of, of, of Hillary, you know, because that was Hillary's mistake. No, we should be careful towards uh, middle classes, banks, uh, I mean money banks, and all that stuff. No, that, that's not the way to win, my God. Incidentally, and now I go to my main line, the last thing uh, about... Uh, 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 you know, I spoke afterwards privately with uh, Paul Mason. Some leftists here call him NATO Trotskyite, Trotskyist, you know. But I'm here on his side because he doesn't buy the story which I find terrifying. That in spite of all his conservative stance, Putin opposes United States and he's basically on our side. No, sorry, I don't buy that. It's a little bit too systematic. Putin's uh, advocacy. I mean, whenever there is a radical right in Europe, Putin supports it, and so on and so on. But what Paul Mason told me, something very interesting. Maria, it's time to do the introduction. <laughs> sorry? I, no, no, no. Where? In the cafeteria with whom? No, I'm sorry, please. You know I'm evil. It's my nature, you know. Okay. Okay, thanks. Yeah. No, let's go on. Sorry. Uh, to conclude this line, uh, you know what he told me? Everybody knows if, but I think he screwed it up. Uh, 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 not Johnson, sorry. The other guy, uh, 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 Corbyn. I think that the whole strategy with Brexit, people felt that Privately, he is more pro-Brexit, but he appeared, his position was not clearly identified. And that's the worst thing a politician can do, I claim. Even if you really don't know what you want, you must give the impression that you know precisely what you want. So I think if it goes on like this, they will lose. But let's say, I hope for this. That's why I'm telling you this now. I will not write a comment on this. I don't want in any way to contribute to uh, a possible loss of election by Labour Party. But what I'm saying is this. Everybody knows what's the big problem. All the big financial centers, banks, companies are already getting ready if Labour wins. Well, hundreds, maybe more, of billions of money will go abroad. So, absolutely, the next step is uh, to stop to control, to abolish the free flow of capital. And this is something that can be done legally, Paul Mason told me, but it's risky. And I think this will be, if you ask me, the big problem. Because if you ask me, maybe I'm wrong, but if Labour somehow forms the government, the logic of the establishment or the procedure, the goal will be, you know, intelligent conservatives like 
to have radical left, relatively radical left, to be in power for a year every three, four decades, then you cause a crash, a catastrophe, domestically, so people have learned now the lesson, you know. And that will be the strategy. But enough of my crazy improvisations. Let's stop it. You will hear more about it tomorrow, about not just Trump, but this my thesis about this new obscene masters is not just this moralistic one. Oh, now you can do anything. There is no longer the field of decency. Obscenity is ruling. No, no, it's much more complex. Just another teaser. I'm now watching it because my younger son is discovering it and I'm feeding it up. They survived relatively well. You know those old, if some of you are old enough, you must have seen them when you were younger, the Colombo. Uh, you know how, and I thought generally about detective fiction in the last decades, how you no longer have a certain figure of detective, usually man, of certain ethical status, decency, and so on. You can be like a monk. I don't like the series, but my wife watches it all the time. You can be half crazy. You can be corrupted, criminal, and so on, but you solve all the cases, you remain. Your authority remains. And that's what we should focus on with these obscene politicians. Trump, Boris Johnson, and so on, and so on. No. I think all this obscenity of their acts is still in the function of not only not undermining, but even sustaining their authority. The metaphor that came to me is this one. I always loved it. I'm repeating an old joke. You remember, but now it's less than, I think. In the old days, by this I mean 20, 30 years ago, when you had a best-selling book, a novel or what, on the last page of covers, you had usually two, three lines. The idea was to give a human touch to the author. For example, I remember in one of uh, Patricia Highsmith, it says, in her free time, Miss Highsmith collects uh, butterflies and likes to grow snails or whatever. In her. <laughs> like, you know, the, the human touch, you know. And we all know that this in no way undermines her greatness as a writer. In a way, it even reasserts it, because precisely you are interested in these ridiculous details, precisely because she is or was a great writer. If you take a totally anonymous person and you say he, uh, he, he collects butterflies, you will say, fuck off, what do I care what <laughs> that guy is? You see, and I think it's something along these lines, so it's not really that there are no norms today, just obscenity. No, this obscenity, I think, it's a very calculated game to reassert, I would even say, a false dignity of the league. Because, you know, let's take even Boris Johnson, but I know it so well, I know a little bit better uh, Trump. Uh, he is not just making fun, incredible obscenities, and so on. The message beneath this is, my, I am obscene because I am like you, and I am working day and night for your benefit. He is not kidding when he says he is an American patriot, and so on, and so on. 
So, my strategy would have been more not to laugh or to be shocked when he does some obscenity, but to laugh and be shocked when he did things which are supposed to be perceived as, as the, decent, the, the decent things. So maybe in some sense we are entering the Duchamp politics. Duchamp, I mean Fontana, you know, an ordinary toilet bowl or whatever, the moment you display it at the right place. We are maybe at that level in politics also, as in detective fiction. Any, anybody can be at that, almost, it's not that's the appearance, anybody can occupy uh, that place. The way I would have done it to act in politics would have been, I think, something similar to what I always imagine. I did this once in China. Uh, some great artist of them invited me and wanted to prove me that he is even more radical than Duchamp and so on, whatever, no, this, in the strategy of displaying ordinary objects, no? So then, my point was this one, not he, his representative, uh, woman there who was his official theorist. I told her, okay, I see there the toilet bowl or whatever Fontana on stage in a museum, and uh, what, I know the logic. The logic is this, arbitrariness. The moment it's up there, displayed in a museum, it's in the sacred space. It's no longer the utilitarian object, it's art. Then I say, I'm always uh, tempted to step up and really urinate in it. And she fell into my trap. She said, but you don't get the point. It's now art if it's up there. You cannot use it. But you can imagine what was my answer. It was, no, what if my urination is also a performance? <laughs> I become, my urination becomes a piece of art there. You know, maybe we should do something like this <laughs> with Trump. But more about this tomorrow, I'm really, uh, oh my God, time is running, so let's do it. If we will have time today, the way to react to Trump along the lines of Joker, I warn you, another teaser, I will uh, uh, talk about people claim they attack me in Slovenia, you are not uh, emphasizing enough that you come from Slovenia, you know, uh, uh, you're just uh, uh, ruthless, international. Now, I did once a thing for which I got even more hatred, but that was the idea. I drew attention so attacked in Slovenia, to affect that, you know, maybe you know the joke, I'm sorry if you do, in Slovene, my joke was that in Slovenia, everybody knows why Mona Lisa laughs. Because our, we are too Puritan a nation, all our dirty words come from Serbo-Croat or Italian. So, Mona, we know what it means. You know, it's Italian vulgar word for vagina, you know. Okay, Lisa, it's easy for us. Lisa, T means to leak. So we know why she is laughing. No, we Slovenes privilege. Okay, so we have another wonderful expression. But this is a teaser. I will not go all the way today. It's, uh, we, uh, you know, you have a whole series of expression where the point is uh, like fuck off, 
Fakit apiors and so on. We in Slovene have a unique expression. Correct me, I would be glad to hear from you if you, in your own culture, have something similar. We have an expression, sorry if there are some who know Slovene, it's very vulgar, kurztegleda, which means let a prick look at you. And uh, the idea is erected prick and so on. So how does this function? My idea is that the, an erected prick is precisely anamorphotic, returning the gaze, and it's not the same as up yours. Up yours is an activity. You know, this is just like, okay, the basic idea is a simple one. To show how I despise you, I will show you my prick. But I will stop here for today. I will tell you it's much more complex because... Uh, what I learned in the Yugoslav army, and I love it, is how, uh, what fascinates me in this military vulgarities is how things can de facto function as their opposite, not in some vague illogical sense, but in the sense that something that may appear to be an insult is really the highest appreciation or the opposite. For example, in army I learned a Serbo-Croat saying, sorry for some of you if you understand it, but I think there are not many of you, Starapička ništa ne jebe, which means an old cunt doesn't get fucked by anybody. <laughs> you know what was this in the army? Nothing anti-feminist, the highest appreciation. It meant an old experienced soldier doesn't get annoyed by anything. You know, like you control the situation. You And I love this paradox, how something which sounds literally extremely aggressive, humiliating. I mean, you know, if you said to your fellow soldier, you are an old cunt who doesn't get fucked up. Oh, really? Thanks. And so on. <laughs> it was the highest thing you can say. That's where we are moving today. But finally, it's enough of this introductory detour. So let me begin. Joker. The reason, first methodological note, the reason for the film's popularity, never forget this, resides in it, I'm sorry for this complicated term, metafictional dimension. The Joker provides the dark genesis of the Batman story, a genesis that has to remain invisible for the Batman myth to function. You know, I think that without this, the movie wouldn't have worked. You know, you have Batman's father there, you see Batman as the young boy, and so on, and so on. If you don't believe me, please just imagine Joker without the reference to Batman. Just a Joker and an anonymous billionaire or whatever, it wouldn't have functioned. Which, again, shows the importance of how ideological myths function. The whole efficiency of Batman, sorry, of Joker is based on this, that it is undermining a myth. Then, let's go to the story. I quote Time Out, which characterized Joker as, quote, a truly nightmarish vision of late-era capitalism. Okay, it's not a very deep thing to say. What I find more interesting is that Time Out also categorized Joker as a social horror Film. 
I think it's very good term because it brings together what is usually opposed. If you say a social film, you usually mean like something along the Ken Loach lines, you know, about social problems, <laughs> poverty, whatever, and so on. If you mean horror film, you mean, I'm now on purpose cynical towards myself, you mean like a cinema version of my talks or whatever, you know, some madmen threatening you and so on. But it's something quite ingenious to combine these two genres, which till now were not thought as something that can be combined, social film and, uh, and horror film. Of course, the epistemological presupposition of this is that our reality itself Social reality starts to function like a horror movie. Next thing that cannot but strike the eye is the reactions to Joker film. Conservatives worried that it may incite viewers to acts of violence. And even, you probably know this, even FBI uh, officially, before the film opened up, made a warning that there can be violence, and so on and so on. Politically correct liberals discerned in the film racist and other cliches. Already in the opening scene, you know, at the very beginning, maybe remember, a group of boys beat Arthur, the Joker figure, and they appear more or less black. Also, left liberals claim the film displays some kind of fascination with blind violence, and so on and so on. Leftists, I'm also critical towards them. They celebrated the film, but I think maybe for wrong reasons. They celebrated the act that... Uh, uh, they celebrated the film in the sense that it renders faithfully the conditions of the rise of violence in our uh, societies. But that's not a big thing to say. Many other films do this, I think. But my first counterpoint here is Joker does not incite spectators to imitate Arthur's acts in real life. Because in clear contrast to other superhero films, where in some sense it may be said that you identify with the hero. I don't think, okay, maybe you are some kind of a special pervert, I don't know. But if you are more or less a normal viewer, I don't think you identify with the Joker figure. The whole point is that it's too traumatic, you cannot identify with him. Okay, you can propose here a more refined reading. You can say that, <coughs> sorry, that you are active through Joker. I'm an ordinary frustrated citizen. There is rage in me, but I'm not able to act it out. So I do it through the figure of Joker. In fiction. Maybe this is true, but I will return to it to the end in a more complex, uh, in a more uh, complex way. So again, there was, this is already very interesting for me, there was a total confusion with Joker. What is it? Is it just another entertainment film? It's a social, is it a social critical film? Is it some kind of a, how do you pronounce the word in English? I'm always confused. Nihilism, nihilism, what's the correct one? Nihilism, okay. Sorry? I can say it both ways. It's like either, either, and all that stuff. <laughs> okay, uh, uh, whatever. 
Uh, so let me go on. The most interesting reading of the film, because it so clearly contrasts with the standard leftist reading, is the one uh, uh, proposed by Tyler Cowan, a kind of a, a, a liberal centrist pro-market pro market blogger. How do I know about him? I was stupid enough to accept uh, to participate at some round table next month in Bergen, and then I learned that he will be interviewing me there. He wrote that, I quote, the film quite explicitly portrays the egalitarian instinct as a kind of barbaric, violent atavism, and it is pointedly critical of Antifa and related movements, showing them as representing a literal end of civilization. Only the wealthy are genteel and urban at proper. So, Tyler Cohen wrote in, in this text that he cannot imagine a more anti-leftist film. That isn't the message precisely, you want a radical rebellion, you will get it. And that's it. Total nihilism without any redeeming feature and so on and so on. Uh, so, for Tyler Cohen, the lesson of the film is the same one as the one of uh, the last uh, Christopher Nolan Batman film, which was the Dark Knight Rises Again or whatever, which I quite liked because it's, you know, a couple of weeks of uh, uh, dictatorship of proletariat in New York. Uh, uh, the lesson is that we should make no radical steps. We can only count on the benevolent charity of the rich to gradually improve things. Now, the leftist answer to this reading is that the self-destructive rebellion portrayed in Joker, this nihilist ex explosion of brutal rage, precisely signals that we remain within the coordinates of the existing order. So, for example, Michael Moore uh, found Joker to be, I quote him, a timely piece of social criticism and a perfect illustration of the consequences of America's current social ills. His point is that when the film explores how Arthur Fleck became Joker, it brings out the role of bankers, collapse of healthcare, the divide between rich and poor, and so on and so on. Moore is therefore right to mock those who feared the film's release. Another quote from Michael Moore. Our country is in deep despair. Our constitution is in shreds. A rogue maniac from Queens has access to the nuclear codes. But for some reason, it's a movie we should be afraid of. The greater danger to society may be if you don't go see this movie. This movie is not about Trump, it's about the America that gave us Trump. The America which feels no need to help the outcast and the destitute. End of quote. Consequently, again, quote, the fear and outcry over Joker is a ruse. It's a distraction so that we don't look at the real violence tearing up our fellow human beings. 30 million Americans who don't have health insurance is an act of violence. Millions of abused women and children living in fear is an act of violence." End of quote. However, this is all true. 
But again, I think it's too short. It's not enough to say this. Because uh, I have some doubts about the next step. Namely, uh, uh, Michael Moore goes on and claims that Joker not only depicts this America, it also raises a discomfitting question. Another quote. What if one day the dispossessed decide to fight back? And I don't mean with the clipboard registering people to vote. People are worried this movie may be too violent for them, really, considering everything we are living through in real life, end of quote. In short, the film tries to, quote again from Moore, understand why innocent people turn into jokers after they can no longer keep it together. So, rather than felt incited to violence, a spectator, quote, will thank this movie for connecting you to a new desire, not to run to the nearest exit to save your own ass, but rather to stand and fight and focus your attention on the non-violent power you hold in your hands every single day. End of quote. My question is a very simple one. But the movie doesn't do this. The movie, in some sense, is nihilistic. Or now I will do something to provoke you, but I think it's deeply true. <laughs> Imagine the film, the same film, just with a more upbeat ending, you know. That at the end, Joker, when he is there alone in the crowd, people shouting, have, uh, brings out a deep, gives a deep monologue and says something like, oh my God, but this sheer distraction is not the right way. What if I awaken people, talk with them about their trouble, and we organize a non-violent progressive movement, and so on and so on. Can you imagine a more absolutely stupid and boring movie than this, you know, upbeat, upbeat ending? No. In a way, the new desire about which Moore speaks, new desire to collective act, and so on, this is precisely what the movie does not portray. Or maybe if Moore, since Moore uses the term desire, I would like here in a Lacanian way to oppose drive and desire. The movie ends in pure drive. Drive, I mean this blind, repetitive, self-destructive, death drive uh, move. There is no creative desire in it. Or, to put it in another way, it's distraction, but there is no sublimation. Joker remains, again, a being of drive. Uh, some additional shift of subjectivity had to take place if we want to, I quote Moore again, to stand and, find and fight and focus our attention on the non-violent power you hold in your hands every single day. Well, I don't see this non-violent power in the film. The way to do it, and that's the reason I like the film, if you ask me, is that there is an opening, but that's why... Uh, okay, of course, we somehow know that this self-destructive nihilism, that it cannot be the last word. There is a postmodern reading, 
which I reject, which is this self-destructive nihilism is the radical revolutionary gesture, but we should step back and do it more moderately and so on and so on. No, no, we have to go through this level, but there must be a new sublimation, a creation of new uh, order. This is why in my text, if you maybe read it, I compared the Joker to Malevich. You know that famous, I always forget, what was the color? Black square on white background or whatever. Yeah, it's simply a zero level. But for Malevich himself, that's why I love him. This was not the final step. You know, this is the postmodern vision, which you already find in some sense in Nietzsche. There is radical self-destructive nihilism, no, we should stop short of that, gently play with it, but not go all the way. Maybe I'm not just towards her, but often I think that uh, uh, Julia Kristeva remains at this level. There is the threat of social self-destruction. We should play with it, but not go all the way. No, the lesson of Malevich is the only way to bring new sublimation, new order, is to go through it. For Malevich, again, the, this black square on white or whatever was not the end, but the beginning. That's why, but we don't have time to go into it. That's why I really like Malevich. Ra my Russian friends told me that it's now clear from some personal letters they discovered of Malevich that the fact that later, in the 20s and early 30s, when Malevich moved towards a kind of a new realism, it wasn't simply because of Stalinist pressure. No, you can in a very nice way see how that new realism is only possible after you go through this zero level. That's why I love, you know, this famous late autoportrait, self-portrait of Malevich. It's very realist, but he holds his hands like this, square, you know. The square is still here, you know. Uh, so, uh, again, uh, let's go on. Among other things, our, uh, what, why is then, because that will be my final point, that this gesture of joker, this self-destructive laughter and so on and so on, of course it shouldn't happen in reality. I mean, it's not true that before organizing a new social order or whatever, we have to do a little bit of looting, killing, and so on. But at some symbolic level, I claim, you have to go through it, which simply means to... to uh, it's more a negative gesture to get rid of all the illusions of the existing order. Uh, the point is this one, and this really makes me very sad, uh, namely what I read. What is, okay, let me make a brief detour. Why do we need this zero-level radical move? And again, I am getting conservative as I'm old. I'm not talking about let's do a little bit of looting and so on. I'm talking about a kind of a... Uh, I don't like the term psychology here, subjective, subjective version of 
what Lacan called subjective destitution, and so on, and so on. In every radical social change, something like this has to happen. Yes, it is a moment of madness, but in the Hegelian sense. If you don't believe me, I'm repeating myself now, myself now very briefly. Uh, look at the... I, repeating myself, I already, I think, mentioned a couple of times here. If you want to see Hegel at his best, look at the beginning of his philosophy of spirit, anthropology, where he, Hegel describes how, in his view, human spirit, human universe, emerged out of animal life. And it's wonderful what he says there. It's more Foucauldian than in Michel Foucault himself. He says that the first step of overcoming animal immersion into life is madness. And Hegel literally says that all that the first form of negativity which characterizes human spirit is madness, and that uh, our symbolic universe is ultimately a defense against the threat of madness. And then Hegel openly says, confronts the big question, and says, this doesn't mean that we all have to be mad, but madness should remain this kind of a, a real, not reality, a point of reference to which we react, defend ourselves even if it never really uh, even if it never really happens so that's for me the liberating aspect of going through this radical zero point of of joker you get rid of the illusions let's take ah i wanted to say what made me sad yes uh, uh, you know that's why joker is becoming a symbol, and it's important that it's more a performative symbol. It's not that people are really looting and killing of new protest movements. I read that from the West Bank to Chile and so on, they are wearing joker masks. I think it's wrong to read this, oh, they will start to loot or whatever. No, it's just they are aware that now I will put it in my ironic political terms, the time of left Fukuyamaism is over. What do I mean by this? Till now, and that's for me the meaning of these new protests that are exploding everywhere today. They are very ambiguous often socially. I agree with Alain Badiou, who said, maybe already even mentioned this here, although I'm not sure, who said, apropos Yellow Vests, a wonderful title, it rhymes in French, tout ce qui bouge n'est pas rouge. All that moves makes disorder is not necessarily red. And, sorry, I thought somebody said, and I even think, I wonder if you would agree that I, if, is there somebody here from Spain or Catalonia? Yeah. Am I right or not? I'm totally confused because generally I was, you are supposed to be, relatively sympathetic towards Catalonia, no? But some friends are now trying to convince me, and I'm at a loss, I must say, that it nonetheless has the element of the, what some people call, revolt of the rich. Um, actually, <laughs> what? I mean, you know, the idea is that it's so... They, sorry, I will immediately allow you to reply to me. The point is this one, <laughs> if you are stupid enough to believe this. Yes. <laughs> the point is this one, that, that they point out that Catalonia and the Basque country are two richest part of, parts of Spain. 
So, uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, where do you stand here, if you are from there? I don't know. I, I, it's not a rhetorical question. It's not that I know and I'm testing you. I really don't know. It's not the same problem. On, on, but yeah, in Basque and Cat or Catalonia. Catalonia and Basque is not the same problem. Uh -huh. But, yeah, it's all about the money. It is, yeah. Yes. Because, nonetheless, somebody told me that these uh, uh, leaders of independent Catalonians, that they were working quite well with previous conservative government. Yes, but... But, uh, tell me the but, yes. It's, like, it's, it's a little bit more complex than that. It's, um, it's a coalition of three forces. And there's one that is from the right. Yeah. And it's true that they impacted all the time with the Partido Popular. Yeah, yeah. like uh, right mm. the party. But um, the anarchy is almost communist left. It's also in the, in the movement. Yeah, but on the other hand, now I'm not advocating what I'm saying now. I just want to get an answer from you. I'm giving you what I got as an answer. They told me that nonetheless, for example, that mayor of Barcelona, a leftist woman, that she was not for independence. No, so again, I don't have a position here. Even with Hong Kong, my God, I signed a petition for Hong Kong, which means bye-bye to all my small royalties from there. I will be again on the blacklist there. I already watched. But nonetheless, some friends there drew my attention to something else, how the protesters in Hong Kong, although I am basically, of course, on their side, I know, uh, they never put it in terms of some general democratic perspective. We are also fighting for democracy in China. No, they just want their own space of freedom. They don't care about China and so on. This is what maybe disturbs me a little bit, you know. I know it would have been even more risky for them to say this, because this is the worst thing you can do in China today, to appeal to their own working class and so on and so on. And the situation is uh, nightmarish there. I like China today in a cynical way, because, friends, I have spies there, my progressive intellectual friends, who told me it's this uh, cynical split at its purest. A couple of years ago, with this harsher line, the government began to print in hundreds of thousands copies uh, 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 the, uh, uh, the classical works of uh, Marx, Lenin, Mao. But at the same time, it's an unwritten prohibition to actually read these works. It's the most risky thing to do. Because they are terribly afraid. Hundreds of students of social sciences effectively read them and said, wait a minute, they talk about workers. What about our own workers? And they co had connect, they established connect links with some uh, chemical factories around Beijing where, of course, no protection workers, blah, 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 and they got arrested and so on, you know. So, but that's another story. So, let me go on. Uh, there may be all these ambiguities, but nonetheless, I think that the lesson of this new unrest from Chile to here to there and so on is that the Fukuyama vision, and I take it very seriously, it's easy to make fun of Fukuyama, but I claim even today, 90, okay, not 99, 95% of the left is Fukuyamaist left. By this I mean, we, they accept some kind of more 
socially conscious liberal capitalism as the only forum which works, and then just let's make it a little bit more human rights, a little bit more social justice, but basically they accept the frame. And this is also the topic, that's what makes me sad, uh, uh, this problem is with us already for the last 30 years. You know, when Germany got reunited, maybe the crucial Fukuyamaist philosopher today, I say this with all irony, Jürgen Habermas, wrote a text which is pure Fukuyama. He coined a term for for all these East European so-called revolutions, he meant especially Poland, Czech Republic, and, and uh, East Germany. He said, uh, if you are some who, whose uh, language is German, correct me if I will translate, Nachholende Revolution, which means vaguely translated catch-up revolution. And his idea was clear, that these were just revolutions whose function was to catch up with Western liberal societies. And uh, Habermas was consequent here. He was horrified at the idea that the West could also have learned something from the East, some form of solidarity or whatever. He, he, it was quite tragic, his fear of this. He thinks that every insistence on, but there were nonetheless some forms of social solidarity, in the blah, blah, blah. For him, this was a path to fascism the new right-wing uh, conservatism, and so on, and so on. So there was a big clash between him, even publicly, and some East German dissidents, like Heiner Müller, Christa Wolf, okay, it's a question to what degree they were dissidents, and others who nonetheless wanted a more positive vision, like with our struggle for justice, maybe it's not just to reunite with West Germany, maybe we brought something. So I think that the revolts, especially Yellow Vests, with all the problematic appearances there, signal, I think, precisely the end of this Fukuyamaist vision, that we have a system that we want and that all we can do is to make it a little bit better. Now I will go a little bit further. I will make, uh, oh, we have time, perfect, uh, a detour. Uh, for example, where do we need today jokers, brutal laughter? I refer here, this will shock you, to not even a friend of mine. I haven't met him. His name is Mike Krampler, an American, so probably he's not here. He's a very interesting person. You wouldn't believe it. Uh, Left-wing uh, incel. You know incels, the left-wing one. She convinced me that they shouldn't be simply discarded as the most perverted form of, uh, of, 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 of male chauvinism and so on. And he sent me some texts uh, with, in one, he attacks, uh, I think in a pretty convincing way, this politically correct obsession with consensual sex, you know. As long as it is consensual, it's okay. And then you get all these crazy bureaucratic ideas, it's confirmed. I have now the document at home. For example, in Australia, in New South Wales, okay, they don't practice it, it's ridiculous. Ridic but you know that in New South Wales, they 
have a law now that before any sexual act, there has to be some kind of a written or recorded consent. Uh, and this is what this guy, Mike Crampler, wrote me. The consent discourse is itself a huge sham. It is a naive effect, effort to overlay a neat and tidy, intelligible, egalitarian language on so of social justice over the dark, discomfortable, relentlessly cruel, traumatic realm of sexuality. People do not know what they want. They are disturbed by what they desire. They desire things that they hate. They hate their fathers but want to fuck their mothers, whatever, and so on and so on. It's confused what he writes, but in some sense I agree with it. To avoid now any misunderstanding that you will not think that my message is so, we don't need consent, bam, bam, I just rape you or whatever. No, I'm absolutely for consent. I'm just saying it will not do all the job. The first thing that comes immediately to my mind is my... That uh, I think that a more subtle violence, by definition, happens with, within consent. You give a formal consent, and then you have all the more refined modes of cruelty, and so on and so on. My God, we should not forget Marxist lesson that consent is, in the sense of legal contract, is the basic formula of so-called bourgeois justice. And okay, we may laugh at this, but in today's Sexuality, it certainly holds that consent is not enough. A formal consent can still mask a violence. And second thing, maybe even more important, that, you know, sexuality doesn't work like that. And I it's not simply we know what we want and we look with sexual greed into each our eyes. Yes, we both want to do it and then it's everything is okay. Okay, I agree there should be consent. Again, my point is not against consent. My point is, I repeat it, that consent will not do the entire job. There can be consent and still there can be trauma. Because, you know, let's be very traditional here. Are we really forgetting so fast the lesson of Freud that we are, I'm sorry for this old term, divided being who don't know what they want, who don't want what they desire, and so on and so on. So we should just be a little bit more careful here. Uh, and so now comes maybe the shocking part for you, but it's very feminist. People often ask me, you're just making fun of feminism and so on, but are you then really a feminist? I think I absolutely am. Uh, a cup, uh, a while ago, I really want you to read it. Things like this turn me onto, into a feminist instantly. Uh, it's uh, on a, uh, uh, on a, uh, 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 on a, uh, I even, not marginal, uh, Sorry, I will uh, find it later. I, okay, I found some... Ah, sorry, I have it here. That was the confusion. Go to newframe.com, newframe, one word, com, and put Mexico feminism. And you will get uh, an incredibly 
disturbing report on the situation today in Mexico City. But I'm not focusing on that, because then if you expand it, you see similar things are happening in United States and so on and so on. I know what the situation I read there in Mexico City, there. Rape is so omnipresent that they even had to separate cars on the subway for men and for women. Because rapes were done publicly. You just did it there, people looked, laughed, and so on. Now, but what's the problem? The problem is that these uh, cars for women are protected by police, which means rapes go on because they are, of course, done by police. And uh, the situation is so horrible that, uh, for example, if one woman wants to visit another, it's a standard formula to consult. You even have websites which tell you that street is safe, that street is not safe, rather take their path, the whole set of measures. But what's really the most horrible part of it is that, uh, to cut a long story short, uh, not only you cannot rely on police, but police more or less openly mocks the attempt to curb this phenomena and collaborates with rapists. It's becoming part of an openly admitted culture. You know what really hit me happened there? One girl was courageous enough to report the rapists to the police. You know what happened? Police not only did nothing, but they, uh, they uh, rendered public to the newspapers informed them photo, name and address of this girl. I mean, so again, we get some kind of, the term they use is generalized impunity. You simply cannot rely on police. Now, just... Please, I'm not an anti-Mexican racist. Don't focus on Mexico. You know, whenever we focus on these countries outside our sp sphere, always beware that maybe in a little bit more covered up, hushed up way, the same things are happening here in our societies. For example, I must mention this to you, I, jumping but briefly to another topic. You know, when I gave here summer classes on that Neuralink and so on, they said, oh, you're exaggerating. It's ah, I read, maybe you also did, it was reported in our newspapers, and then I checked with my friends. What is happening in China already? Uh, in some elementary schools in the province, they are already forcing pupils, boys from seven to 12, 13, to wear small hamlets, uh, sorry, uh, small, uh, like, metal caps, whatever, on their head, which measure they, their brain activity, you know how they justify it? They said, so that the teacher can be sure, because it's relatively primitive, but the machine can measure if the child is at attentive or not. My God, I think, here I am for human rights discourse. Your basic human right should be to ignore the stupidities the teacher is telling you. Okay, you have to be polite, not make sounds, but at least allow me, I would say, in my mind to escape, you know. And you see, they are, it's explo how ex explosive, how this is, how uh, this is, uh, how this is, uh, 
developed. So now I will give you another from popular press note. Now you will say, but this is primitive Mexico. Hey, hey, hey. I, my wife, draw my attention to this. Uh, uh, in Vogue magazine, the actress from that stupid Dark Moon or whatever series, but she is nice, politically very progressive, intelligent, Kirsten Stewart. She made an excellent comment against this Rose McGovern Me Too orientation. She said, why talk about them? Why is the model uh, a star who was traumatized by a producer telling her, allow me to fuck you if you want to get that role? She said, step on, make only one step back. And look in the same studio at script girls, secretaries, and so on. Being fucked by producers and so on, that is part of their daily life. It's totally normalized. And nobody talks, nobody talks about that. That's what traumatized me. But back to Mexico. What I love about this example is that... Uh, Uh, what I love here is uh, uh, an, another uh, another accent. Okay, I'll not bore you with quotes, but I love it. It's uh, the accent on the joy of life. It's what their intelligent feminist, the Mexican women. Their point is not this politically correct. Oh, every man is potentially an aggressor. Let's be. Uh, let's be let's be careful. Avoid it. Phallic penetration is, in its sense, form of violence. No, they say what we desperately want is joy of life. We want sex and so on and so on. You know, it's a wonderful, joyful message. They are not doing what they are doing for some this terrifying view of uh, against aggressivity. Their orientation is absolutely positive, joy of life, and so on. They should be our model. But uh, So I think now you will say I lost my track. I didn't. Because I think that uh, this, like, I can imagine Joker when you tell him consensual sex. Consent is okay. He would start to love the way he does in the movie, and he would say something like, yes, that's how my mother ruined me, if you... <laughs> it was purely consensual, you know. Uh, also, this same guy, my incel friend, told me also a wonderful thing about how this political idea that in seduction and elsewhere, this idea that it's bad for people to lie to each other. But his answer of this insult friend of mine, Mike Crumpler, is that, my God, but in sexual seduction and generally in social life, but we are lying all the time to others and to ourselves. Lying is our reality. We don't want to confront what kind of people we are. We lie in seduction and so on and so on. Now we will say, but we shouldn't lie. I doubt. I when I was younger, I'm no longer doing it, and I was never promiscuous. But at some point, I had many strange experiences. Like flirting with a lady, I wanted to be honest, and I didn't want to lie to her. So I told her some details, which were a little bit embarrassing, psychological, not personal. 
uh, and uh, you know what was her answer? Did you really have to tell me that? Couldn't you leave me some illusions and so on and so on? I mean, and I understand her. I'm not mocking her. I mean, uh, uh, so again, the guy is making here the same point as with uh, the same point as with uh, 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 consent. Don't simplify in this way. Things are uh, things are complex. So let me go on. What he Joker enables us is to go through this zero point, which is, I claim, a kind of new version of what once we called the proletarian position. Now I will quote Arthur, and it's wonderful, if you know German, you noticed it. You know what's his family name? Speck. Speck. You know, in German, Speck means stain. It's wonderful to have this as a family name. But, okay, he says in the film, I quote, I've got nothing left to lose. Nothing can hurt me anymore. My life is nothing but a comedy. End of quote. So this is where I think the idea that Trump is a kind of joker in power finds its limit. Trump definitely did not go through this zero point. Trump may be an obscene clown in his own way, but he is not a joker figure. It's an insult to joker to compare him with Trump, I claim, not the other way around. In the film, if you need a joker in the mode of Trump, it's, uh, it's uh, Wayne the father, who is this typical Capitalist is extremely brutal, but at the same time, of course, involved in uh, charities and so on. The figure of the obscenity of power. Now I will reply to a criticism of me. A guy, I thought it was a guy, then friends told me she is a lady, M.L. Clark. She goes, I claim, ridiculously wrong when she proposes, proposed a reading of my own philosophy as a version of Joker's nihilist stance. I quote her. Zizek's Hegelian philosophy meets pop science. Re uh, 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 thought relentlessly insists that the only objective reality is not the nothingness from which something was created, but rather the tension between the true nothing burger underpinning existence and the moral depravity of our inevitable attempts to impose meaning upon it. End of quote. So what's the idea? The idea is that for me, the basic ontological fact is the tension between the ultimate meaningless, the ultimately meaningless void or crack and our humanity's attempts to impose some meaning onto this chaotic crack. Well, I claim this is definitely not my position. Such a position is just a new version of the old existentialist humanism, which perceives humans as beings who heroically endeavor to impose some meaning onto the chaos of the world. However, according to Clark, I make here a step further in the Joker direction. Since all attempts to impose meaning onto the primordial chaotic void obfuscate this void and are thus hypocritical, 
That is to say, since these attempts escape from the basic nonsense of existence, they are acts of moral depravity. Or, to bring this point to extreme, morality itself attempts to impose a universal meaning onto reality is a form of moral depravity. So the only consequent moral stance is the one of full nihilism, of joyfully endorsing the violent destruction of every attempt to impose moral order onto our chaotic life. We should renounce every universal humanist project that would enable us to surmount our discords. Another quote from M.L. Clark. No matter how much we might want to insist that our shared humanity is stronger than our momentary discords and our abiding individual differences, the jokers and rejects are never quite going to be persuaded. Their respective ideological frameworks require them to keep pointing to the social tensions that remain, the chaos that will always be a part of our collective uh, press towards a better synthesized social whole. End of quote. I mean, I couldn't believe my ears, or eyes rather, when I read this. I, of course, consider this stance of radical nihilism not only totally at odds with my clear political engagements, but also self-contradictory. It needs its fake moral opponent to assert itself in its joyful destruction and unmasking of hypocrisy. Therein resides, I think, the limit of the desperate attempts to reverse tragedy into triumphant comedy, practiced by incels, clown cells, or Joker himself. Because just before shooting Murray, the other paternal figure, played by Robert De Niro, you know, here is a quote what uh, Joker says. Have you seen what it's life out there, Murray? Do you ever actually leave the studio? Everybody just yells and screams at each other. Nobody's civil anymore. Nobody thinks what it's like to be the other guy. You think men like Thomas Wayne, the father of Batman, ever think that it's like to be what it's like to be someone like me? To be somebody but themselves. They don't. They think that we'll all just sit down and take it like good little boys. That we won't werewolf and go wild. End of quote. So again, the assertion of joyful destruction remains parasitic on this complaint. And this is where, again, I simply don't get it, where I think uh, M.L. Clark is totally wrong. He thinks that my position is, again, every morality is ultimately hypocritical, it masks the primordial void, so the only thing, totally ethical thing to do is utter immorality destroy everything and so on. It's the only way to be authentic. That's definitely what I don't think. But now I will make another point. Uh, my friendly disagreement with Judith Butler. Did you read her text published a couple of weeks ago on, uh, on Donald Trump? I think here it was published in, uh, in London Review of Books. Uh, her point is this one, if I got it correctly. Insofar as the Freudian name for this self-destructive negativity displayed by Joker is death drive, 
We should be careful. I, no, that's my point, not her. We should be careful not to characterize Trump's self-destructive defense against the attempts to impeach him as manifestations of death drive, because that's her thesis, that what Trump is doing now, this paradoxical vicious cycle, he defends himself against impeachment, but the very way he defends himself, the vulgarity of it, open lies, contradictions, provides arguments for impeachment. I, my point is, yes, while Trump rejects, that's her point, sorry, now I'm really confused between her and mine. While Trump rejects the accusations that should lead to his impeachment, he simultaneously confirms the very crimes he is accused of and breaks the law in his very defense of the law. But my answer to this, does he not thereby just enact more openly than usual the violence which is constitutive of the rule of law? The fact that the very agency that regulates the application of the law has to exempt itself from the reign of the law. So yes, Trump is obscene in acting the way he does. But in this way, he only brings out the obscenity that is the obverse of the law itself. The negativity of his acts is totally subordinated to, of course, his perception of his ambitions, his well-being, what he sees as good for America, and so on. So, again, Trump, I think, is not, is far from, let's call it naively, authentic death drive enacted by 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 Joker. There is absolutely nothing suicidal about Trump's boasting about how he breaks the rules. It's simply part of his message that he's a tough guy, tough guy president, beset by, haunted by, persecuted by corrupt elites and boosting United States abroad and that his transgressions are necessary because only a rule breaker can crush the power of the Washington swamp. To read this well-planned and very rational, in a perverse sense, of course, strategy, in terms of death drive, I think is uh, totally wrong and misleading. Now, let me go back for the final... Oh, we still have time, good. For the final, my final points about... Uh, uh, Joker. In Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight, Joker, you may remember, is the only figure of truth. The goal of his terrorist attacks on Gotham City is made clear. He says, they will stop when Batman will take off his mask and reveal his true identity. What then is Joker, who then is Joker who wants to disclose the truth beneath the mask? He is not a man without mask, but that's what I like about Joker. And that's, I think, what happens in the film. In this one, especially the new Joker. Uh, he's not a person of truth without mask. Like, you see the real me. No, he's a man fully identified with his mask. A man who is his mask. There is nothing when towards the end of the film when he becomes fully identified with his mask, there is nothing, no ordinary guy uh, beneath his mask. That's why Joker has no backstory. He lacks any clear motivation. 
that's good in, in Nolan's The Dark Knight with Heath Ledger, who played him in a legendary performance. You know, it's interesting to note how in that film you get three, four different, when Joker tells his life story, three, four different versions of it. It's as if he's saying, fuck it, it doesn't matter. My origins don't matter. And I think we find this implicitly also in Joker, the film. He, is this a soft message to shut up? Uh, but my points are, you know, like, uh, uh, like uh, erected to be obscene, erected long hard points. You know? <laughs> no, no, okay, okay, let me, allow me, because we still have time, because we are now 34, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you can be late, I can also be late a little bit. <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, what I want to say is that uh, here, I'm sorry to repeat another old story, which is my favorite one. I like this. He's close to a joker here. Lacan was much more a joker than me, I think. Maybe you know the story. I was telling you that, you know, Lacan played a certain role, a little bit comical, ironic in public, very affected, artificial. And then I asked older people who knew Lacan closely, it was a typical bourgeois obsession of mine. But you know him privately. Tell me, what's the real person behind the mask? And I got from all of them the same answer. He's exactly the same in private. You will never discover this real soft person and so on and so on. So that's what I found so fascinating in the figure of Joker. You know, that it's wrong to, to look for... At, at the end, and that's why Joker is not just a victim of circumstances. It's a kind of a creative act, what it does. And this moment, we can locate it precisely when he says, I quote, You know what really makes me love? I used to think that my life was a tragedy, but now I realize it's a fucking comedy. The moment of comedy occurs precisely when he fully identifies with his, uh, with his mask. Now, here things go, I will try to be as short as possible, more complex, because you should note the exact moment when this happens. After saying this, even while saying this, you can sit here. Sit yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah uh, that uh, Joker, uh, 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 Joker uh, uh, takes pillow and, and, uh, and smothers his mother to death. Uh, who then is his mother? Here is how Arthur describes her pre presence, his mother's presence. Another quote from the film. She always tells me to smile and put on a happy face. She says, I was put here to spread joy and laughter. End of quote. So, okay, in the first move, we can say it's the maternal superego at its purest. No wonder, do you notice this nice detail in the movie? His mother refers to him as happy, not Arthur. The nice paradox is that he gets rid of his mother's hold on him by killing her. And at that point, precisely, he fully identifies with laughter, which was her, her idea of him. But, and here, another self-critical collection, correction, sorry, of my first text, shorter version of Joker. Uh, 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 if we say just this, 
it's wrong in the sense that it will again appear that in a subtly anti-feminist way I made I make the mother guilty, you know. Yes, Joker was crazy because he was controlled by the maternal superego. So what's the problem of him is that he was lacking paternal authority. No, no. There are even two paternal figures in the film. Uh, uh, it's, of course, Wayne, the ultra-rich Wayne as the father, probably it's left open in the film, and of course uh, the, uh, the the comedian show performer Mari, played by Robert De Niro. So uh, it's interesting to notice how both figures are killed. The first one not with Joker himself, the second one publicly uh, by uh, publicly uh, by uh, Joker himself. Uh, okay, so I will cut it short. If you want this part, it is go to Philosophical Salon Joker. You will get my full text. I don't want to uh, lose time. But so, again, the film is not here in any sense anti-feminist. His, his mother's superego hold or him, it's clearly, again, the result of paternal brutality and so on and so on. So... Uh, in, I repeat to conclude my point that Joker is, uh, again, ethical but immoral. Immoral, it's obviously killing and so on, but ethical in the sense of pushing to the end his subjective position. He is, uh, uh, he is consistent, but where he is obviously pathological is that and I don't have time to go into it now in detail, that the only way for him to get rid of the maternal superego is to identify fully with it. This is a subtle paradox. So, uh, uh, again, just to... Uh, I will really try to... Just to conclude, this is what critics, many critics don't uh, confront or even ignore in their view of the film. For example, uh, a, a guy, uh, I forgot his name, uh, some critic of uh, New York Times, yes, A.O. Scott, claims that in his critical review, the Joker is, quote, a story about nothing. The look and the sound connote gravity and depth, but the movie is weightless and shallow. But that's what I like about the film. It's not that at the end we get a kind of a deep insight into the tragedy of the figure of the Joker and so on. No. Joker, as it were, empties himself of his personality and so on. It's a kind of a it's a kind of a it's a kind of a terrifying freedom. So uh, 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 again, now I will quickly again go to Philosophical Salon, Joker, Zizek, and you will immediately get the whole story. I just want to conclude, uh, I just uh, want to say that uh, the, what I don't think is pointed out enough in leftist affirmations of the film, like Michael Moore, is that 
precisely, Joker is obviously a total deadlock. Nobody will say today, oh, that, that's, that should be our politics, and so on. But it's a much more subtle paradox. I will conclude with a very friendly adventure that I used here a couple of times as an example. Uh, apropos Judith Butler, this time, she's, this time it's very gentle. You know, some gestures are needed, although they are totally superfluous in the deadlock. But you have to make them. My usual example is once I was, I was rude towards Judith, and I will not go into the whole story, and then I called her and apologized to her. And she told me, but Slavoj, I know you, you didn't mean bad, no apology is needed. But you see the subtlety. She said no apology is needed, but that was her way to accept apology. Because in my evil, my immediate reaction was, fuck you, then I take back my apology, you know. <laughs> no, it would can be wrong. If she were to say, yes, you had, it was time for you to apologize, this would really have meant that she didn't accept my apology. You see the elegance. You have to do an empty gesture which succeeds precisely insofar as it is, uh, as it is proclaimed superfluous, unnecessary. And I think it's something like this with Joker, sorry for this bombastic example, from the standpoint of a revolutionary process and so on. No, we don't, I'm not imploring you to go out and do it in reality and so on. We need it as a symbolic fiction to designate the, the fact that we are not just Habermasian Fukuyamaists. That's what Joker means for me. It's not just, you know, yeah, we have the system, let's just a little bit more health here, there, and so on, and so on. This is what it means to me, the figure of Joker. And I am, the paradox is very nice here, and Michael Moore puts it, but doesn't develop it, that uh, when he speaks about the power of those who renounce violence, at the end, with all his violence, we perceive Joker, in spite of his emptying himself of content, as a powerless figure, really. This type of violence is totally powerless. And that's why the ultimate image, the ultimate message of the film is, for me, not violent one. It's not the vulgar pragmatic one. Okay, Joker had his violence, but it was stupid irrational violence. We need more rational violence. Okay, a little bit of this helps sometimes because, as I put it in my comment on Bolivia, one big proof that uh, Morales was not authoritarian, this is for me the ultimate proof, is that police and army turned against him. Sorry, guys, but the first thing that true authoritarians do is to purge army and police. That's what Chavez did and so on. You know, so, but what I'm saying is that in spite of this, uh, uh, the ultimate gesture, the ultimate message of the film, and that's where I see an elegance of the film, is that, no, we don't identify with Joker. We see his total deadlock. But now we will say, but where is then the positive message, this? Uh, where is, how to put it, to go to the end in my vulgarity? Uh, for kitschy leftists, it would be like, Joker says at the end, no, I did it wrongly. Rather organize yourself and vote for Bernie Sanders or whatever, you know. <laughs> 
That's the elegance of the film. That would have been vulgar. The elegance is that this is left to us spectators, viewers. The film shows a deadlock, shows a deadlock, and it's elegant enough not to preach positively what we should do. The new desire about which Michael Moore speaks is our desire. We should. It should arise in us spectators. It would be absolutely virgil and wrong to stage it there to stage it there in the film, you know. So you see where I again now I will really finish where I disagree with ordinary leftist critics that it's not simply the film shows the depicts horrible suffering, blah blah blah. No, let's be quite vulgar. In spite of his suffering and so on, there are people who suffer much more. Like to be very vulgar. I would still prefer to live in the Brooklyn of Joker than to live in tell me some nightmarish country like Democratic Republic of Congo with all the child warriors and so on and so on. No, it's not a film about objective determinations of our misery. It's a film about a certain gesture of subjectivization because his emptying of personal content, his identification with the mask is, uh, is, is nonetheless in some sense an authentic act. You have to go through that zero point. And that's what that's what happens, but again, it's left to us. You know, it's elegant gesture where we are included into the film's message. Again, the last message, it's for us to decipher it. It's not depicted there. I'm sorry That's if I was great. too long. And no.